Chapter 20, Part 2 of Marie Antoinette and Her Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louise Muehlbach. To the 21st of January. But December took this last consolation from the Queen. The National Assembly, which had now been transformed into the Convention, brought the charge of treason against the King. He was accused of entering into a secret alliance with the enemies of France and calling the monarchs of Europe to come to his assistance. In an iron safe which had been set into the wall of the cabinet in the Tuileries, papers had been discovered which compromised the King, letters from the refugee princes, from the Emperor of Germany, and the King of Prussia. These monarchs were now on the very confines of France, ready to enter upon a bloody war, and that was the fault of the King. He was in alliance with the enemies of his country. He was the murderer of his own subjects. On his head the blood should return which had been shed by him. This was the charge which was brought against the king. Twenty members of the convention went to the temple to read it to him and to hear his reply. He stoutly denied having entertained such relations with foreign princes. He declared with a solemn oath that he had declined all overtures from such quarters because he had seen that, in order to free an imprisoned king, France itself must be threatened. The chiefs of the revolution meant to find him guilty. Louis Capet must be put out of the way in order that Robespierre and Marat, Danton, Petion, and their friends might reach unlimited power. There may have been several in the convention who shrank from this last consequence of their doings, but they did not venture to raise their voices. They chimed in with the terrorism which the leaders of the revolution exercised upon the convention. They knew that behind these leaders stood the savage masses of the street, armed with hatred against monarchy and the aristocracy, and ready to tear in pieces anyone as an enemy of the country who ventured to join the number of those who were under the ban and the sentence of the popular hate. Still, there were some courageous, faithful servants of the king who ventured to take his part even there. Louis had now been summoned to the bar as an accused person, and the convention had transformed itself into a tribunal whose function was to pass judgment on the guilt or innocence of the king. In order to satisfy all the forms of the law, the king should have had an advocate allowed him, and the benefit of legal counsel. The convention demanded that those who are ready to undertake this task should send in their names. It was a form deemed safe to abide by, because it was believed that there would be no one who would venture to enter upon so momentous and perilous a duty. But there were such, nevertheless. There were still courageous and noble men who pitied the forsaken king and who wanted to try to save him, not willing to see him atone for the debts of his predecessors and bleed for the sins of his fathers, and scarcely had the consent of the convention been announced that Louis Capet should have free advocates for his defence, when from Paris and all the minor cities letters came in from men who declared themselves ready to undertake the defence of the king. Even from foreign lands there came letters and appeals in behalf of the deposed monarch. One of them, written in spirited and glowing language, conjured France not to soil its noble young freedom by the dreadful murder of an innocent man, who had committed no other offence than that he was the son of his fathers, the heir of their crown and their remissness. It was written by a German poet, Frederick Schiller, 
Footnote. Schiller's defense of the king is preserved in the National Archives. See Buchen, Volume I, page 366. From the many requests to serve as his advocates, Louis chose only two to defend him. The first of these was his former minister, the philosopher La Morgnon de Malzerbe, then the advocate Touche, and finally, at the pressing request of Malzerbe, the distinguished young advocate Desirge. To those three men was committed the trust of defending the king against the dreadful charge of treason to his country, to be substantiated by hundreds and hundreds of letters and documents. After the preliminary investigations were closed, the public charge was made in the convention, which still held its sessions in the menage. To this building, situated near the Tuileries, the king, accompanied by his three defenders and two municipal defenders, and surrounded by national guards, was conducted from the temple. The people danced around the carriage with wild shouts of joy and curses of the king. Within the vehicle sat Louis, completely calm and self-possessed. "'This man must be filled with a singular fanaticism.' said Columbieu, one of the leading officials, in the report which he gave to the convention of the ride. It is otherwise inexplicable how Louis could be so calm, since he had so much reason to fear. After we had all entered the carriage and were driving through the streets, Louis entered upon conversation, which soon turned upon literature, and especially upon some Latin authors. He gave his judgments with remarkable correctness and insight, and it appeared to me that he took pleasure in showing his learning one of us said that he did not enjoy seneca because his love for riches stood in marked contrast with his pretended philosophy and because it could not easily be forgiven him that before the senate he apologized for the crimes of nero this reflection did not seem to affect louis in the least when we spoke of livy capet said that he seemed to have taken satisfaction in composing great speeches which were never uttered to any other audience than that which was reached from his study table for, he added, it is impossible that generals really delivered such long speeches in front of their armies. He then compared Livy with Tacitus, and thought that the latter was far superior to the former in point of style. Footnote, C. Buchen, Volume I, page 396. The king went on talking about Latin offers while the carriage was carrying him through the roaring mobs to the convention, which decision addressed in his defense in these courageous words i look for judges among you but see only accusers the king was completely calm yet he knew that his life was threatened and that he was standing before a tribunal of death as on the day when he was first taken to the convention he requested malsherb to forward a note to the priest whose attendance he desired and who he believed would not deny his presence and attentions his name was edgeworth de piermont the time was not distant when not the services of advocates were wanted by the king but exclusively those of the priest the sentence of death was pronounced on january twenty sixth seventeen ninety three Louis received it calmly, and desired merely to see his family, to have a confessor come to him, and to prepare himself for his death. During these dreadful weeks, Marie Antoinette was separated from her husband, alone with her children, who no longer were able to smile, but who sat day after day with fixed eyes and silent lips. The queen knew that the king had been accused, had made a private reply to the charges brought against him, and had been brought before the convention. 
but not a word not a syllable of the child which followed reached her madame tyson the female dragon who guarded her watched her too well for any tidings to reach her at last however the word was brought which the heart of the queen had so long anticipated tremblingly for which she had prepared herself during the long nights with tears and prayers and which now filled her with grief anger and despair the king was condemned to death he wanted only to see his family to take his leave of them the convention had granted this privilege to him and had even gone so far in its grace as to permit the family to be without the presence of witnesses the meeting was appointed however in the little dining-room of the king because a glass door led into the adjoining room and the officials could then look in upon the royal family the functionary had withdrawn in order to conduct the queen the children and the king's sister from the upper tower the king was awaiting them walked disquietly up and down and then directed clary who was arranging the little room to set the round table which was in the middle of the apartment on one side and then to bring in a cafe of water and some glasses but he added considerately not ice water for the queen cannot bear it and she might be made unwell by it but all at once the king grew pale and standing still he laid his hand upon his loudly beating heart he had heard the voice of the queen the door opened and they came in all his dear ones the queen led the dauphin by the hand madame elizabeth walked with the princess theresa the king went toward them and opened his arms to them they all pressed up to him and clasped him in their midst while loud sobs and heart-rending cries filled the room behind the door were the officials but they could not look in upon the scene for their own eyes were filled with tears in the king's cabinet not far away the abbey edgeworth de fermont was upon his knees praying for the unfortunates whose wails and groans reached even him gradually the sobs died away they took their places the queen at the left of her husband madame elizabeth his sister at his right opposite to him his daughter maria theresa and between his knees the dauphin looking up into his father's face with widely opened eyes and a sad smile louis was the first to speak he told them of his trial and of the charges which they had brought against him but his words were gentle and calm and he expressed his pity for the poor misled men who had condemned him he asked his family too to forgive them they answered him only with sobs embraces tears and kisses then all was still the officials heard not a word but they saw the queen with her children and sister-in-law sink upon their knees while the king standing erect in the midst of the group raised his hands and blessed them in gentle noble words which touched the heart of the abbe edgeworth who was kneeling behind the door of the neighbouring cabinet the king then bade the family rise took them again in his arms and kissed the queen who pale and trembling clung to him and whose quivering lips were not able to restrain a word of denunciation of those who had condemned him i have forgiven them said the king seriously i have written my will and in it you will read that i pardon them and that i ask you to do the same promise me marie that you will never think how you may avenge my death a smile full of sadness and despair flitted over the pale lips of the queen 
I shall never be in a situation to take vengeance upon them, she said. But, she added quickly, even if I should ever be able, and the power should be in my hands, I promise that I will exact no vengeance for this deed. The king stooped down and imprinted a kiss upon her forehead. I thank you, Marie, and I know that you all, my dear ones, will sacredly regard my last testament, and that my wishes and words will be engraven on your hearts. But, my son, and he took the Dufas upon his knee, and looked down into his face tenderly, you are still a child and might forget. You have heard what I have said, but as an oath is more sacred than a word, raise your hand and swear to me you will fulfill my wish and forgive all our enemies. The boy, turning his great blue eyes fixedly on the king, and his lips trembling with emotion, raised his right hand, and even the officials in the next room could distinctly hear the sweet child's voice repeating the words, I swear to you, Papa King, that I will forgive all our enemies and will do no harm to those who are going to kill my dear father. A shudder passed through the hearts of the men in the next room. They drew back from the door with pale faces. It seemed to them as if they had heard the voice of an angel, and a feeling of inexpressible pain and regret passed through their souls. Within the king's room all now was still, and the abbe and the cabinet heard only the gentle murmuring of their prayers and the suppressed weeping and sobs. At last the king spoke. Now go, my dear ones. I must be alone. I need to rest and collect myself. A loud wail was the answer. After some minutes, Clary opened the glass door, and the royal family were brought into the view of the officials once more. The queen was clinging to the right arm of Louis. They each gave a hand to the Dufas. Teresa had flung her arms around the king's body. His sister Elizabeth clung to his left arm. They thus moved forward a few steps toward the door, mid loud cries of grief and heartbreaking sobs. I promise you, said Louis, to see you once more tomorrow morning at eight o'clock. At eight? Why not at seven? asked the queen with a foreboding tone. Well then, answered the king gently, at seven. Farewell, farewell. The depth of sadness in his utterance with which he spoke the last parting word doubled the tears and sobs of the weeping family. The daughter fell in a swoon at the feet of her father, and Clary, assisted by the princess Elizabeth, raised her up. Papa, my dear papa, cried the Dufas, nestling up close to his father. Let us stay with you. The queen said not a word. With pale face and with widely opened eyes, she looked fixedly at the king, as though she wanted to impress his countenance on her heart. Farewell, farewell, cried the king once more, and he turned quickly around and hurried into the next room. A single cry of grief and horror issued from all lips. The two children, soon to be orphans, then clung closely to their mother, who threw herself, overmastered by her sobbing, on the neck of her sister-in-law. Forward! The Capet family will return to their own apartments, cried one of the officials. Marie Antoinette raised herself up, her eyes flashed, and with a voice full of anger she cried, You are hangmen and traitors! Footnote Buchen, Volume 1, page 49. The king had withdrawn to his cabinet, where the priest, Abbe Edgeworth de Fermont, addressed him with comforting words. 
His earnest request had been granted to give the king the sacrament before his death. The service was to take place very early the next morning, so ran the decision of the authorities, and at seven the king was to be taken to execution. Louis received the first part of this communication joyfully, the second part with complete calmness. As I must rise so early, he said to his valet, Clary, I must retire early. This day has been a very trying one for me, and I need rest, so as not to be weak to-morrow. He was then undressed by the servant and lay down. When Clary came at five the next morning to dress him, he found the king still asleep, and they must have been pleasant dreams which were passing before him, for a smile was playing on his lips. The king was dressed, and the priest gave him the sacrament. The vessels used having been taken from the neighboring Capuchin church of Marai, an old chest of drawers was converted by Clary into an altar, two ordinary candlesticks stood on each side of the cup, and in them two tallow candles burned, instead of wax. Before this altar kneeled King Louis the Sixteenth, lost in thought and prayer, and wearing a calm, peaceful face. The priest read the Mass, Clary responded as sacristan, and even while the king was receiving the elements, the sound of the drums and trumpets was heard without, which awakened Paris that morning and told the city that the king of France was being led to his execution. Cannon were rattling through the streets, and national guardsmen were hurrying on foot and on horse along the whole of the way that led from the temple to the Place de la Concorde. A rank of men, four deep and standing close to one another, armed with pikes and other weapons, guarded both sides of the street, and made it impossible for those who wanted to liberate the king during the ride to come near to him. The authorities knew that one of the bravest and most determined partisans of the king had arrived in Paris, and that he, in conjunction with a number of young and brave-spirited men, had resolved on rescuing the king at any cost, during his ride to the place of execution. The utmost precautions had been taken to render this impossible. Through the dense ranks of the National Guard, which today was composed of mere sans clothes, the raging, bloodthirsty men of the suburbs drove the carriage in which was the king, followed and escorted by National Guardsmen on horseback. The windows were all closed and the curtains drawn in the houses by which the procession passed, but behind those curtain windows it is probable that people were upon their knees praying for the unhappy man who was now on his way to the scaffold and who was once king of France. All at once there arose a movement. In this dreadful hedge of armed men, through which the carriage was passing, Two young men cried, To us, Frenchmen, to us, all who want to save the king. But the cry found no response. Everyone looked horrified at his neighbor, and believed he saw in him a spy or a murderer. Fear benumbed all their souls, and the silence of death reigned around. The two young men wanted to flee, to escape into a house close by, but the door was closed, and before the very door they were cut down and hewn in pieces by the exasperated sans culottes. The carriage of the king rolled on, and Louis paid no more attention to objects around him. In the prayer book which he carried in his hands he read the petitions for the dying, and the abbe prayed with him. A coachman halted at the foot of the scaffold, and the king dismounted. A forest of pikes surrounded the spot. The drummers beat loudly, but the king cried with a loud voice, Silence! And the noise ceased, 
On that, Santerre sprang forward and commanded them to commence beating their drums again, and they obeyed him. The king took off his upper garments, and the executioners approached to cut off his hair. He quietly let this be done, but when they wanted to tie his hands, his eyes flashed with anger, and with a firm voice he refused to allow them to do so. Sire, said the priest, I see in this new insult only a fresh point of resemblance between your majesty and our saviour, who will be your recompense and your strength. Louis raised his eyes to heaven with an indescribable expression of grief and resignation. Truly, he said, only my recollection of him and his example can enable me to endure this new degradation. He gave his hands to the executioner to let them be bound. Then resting on the arm of the abbe, he ascended the steps of the scaffold. The twenty drummers who stood around the staging beat their drums, but the king, advancing to the very verge of the scaffold, commanded them with a loud voice to be silent, and the noise ceased. In a tone which was audible across the whole square, and which made every word intelligible, the king said, I die innocent of all the charges which are brought against me. I forgive those who have caused my death, and I pray God that the blood which you spill this day may never come back upon the head of France. And you, unhappy people, do not let him go on talking this way, cried Santerre's commanding voice, interrupting the king. Then turning to Louis, he said in an angry tone, I brought you here not to make speeches, but to die. The drums beat, the executioner seized the king and bent him down. The priest stooped over him and murmured some words which only God heard, but which a tradition full of admiration and sympathy has transposed into the immortal and popular formula, which is truer than truth and more historical than history. Son of St. Louis, ascend to heaven. The drums beat, a glistening object passed through the air, a stroke was heard, and blood spurted up. The king of France was dead, and Samson the executioner lifted up the head which had once borne a crown, to show it to the people. A dreadful silence followed for an instant. Then the populace broke in masses through the rows of soldiers and rushed to the scaffold in order to bear away some remembrances of this ever-memorable event. The clothes of the king were torn to rags and distributed, and they even gave the executioner some gold in exchange for locks of hair from the bleeding head. An Englishman gave a child fifteen louis d'or for dipping his handkerchief in the blood which flowed from the scaffold. Another paid thirty louis d'or for the peruke of the king. Footnote. These details I take from the Vosichit Zetong, which, in its issue of the 5th of February, 1798, contains a full report of the execution of King Louis the Sixteenth, and also announces that the court of Prussia will testify its grief at the unmerited fate by wearing mourning for a period of four weeks. The author of this work possesses a copy of this Vosici Zetong of that date, in small quarto form, printed on thick grey paper. In the same number of the journal is a fable by Hermann Pfeffel, which runs in the following strain. First moral, then political freedom. A fable by Hermann Pfeffel. Zeus and the Tigers. To Zeus there came one day a deputation of tigers, mighty potentate, 
Thus spoke their Cicero before the monarch's throne. The noble nation of tigers has long been wearied with the lion's choices, king. Does not nature give us an equal claim with his? Therefore, O Zeus, declare my race to be a people of free citizens. No, said the god of gods, it cannot be. You are deceivers, thieves, and murderers. Only a good people merits being free. Footnote. Marie Antoinette Atza Famine, Par Lescure, page 648. On the evening of the same day, the executioner Samson, shocked at the terrible deed which he had done, went to a priest, paid for masses to be said for the repose of the king, then laid down his office, retired into solitude, and died in six months. His son was his successor in this ghostly office, and, in a pious manner, he continued what his father began. The masses for the king, instituted by the two Samsons, continued to be read till the year 1840. On the morrow which followed this dreadful day, the widow Capet requested the authorities to provide for herself and her family a suite of mourning of the simplest kind. The Republic was magnanimous enough to comply with this request. End of chapter 20, section 2, read by Ella Barnett.